day, a a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed them to Christ. And the, city, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him, they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in that city, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least of the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs of great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them to Peter and John, who had come down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the body of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans, the word of the Lord. We're in a series on the New Testament book of Acts, and what Acts shows us is how a tiny, largely uneducated, ostracized religious minority, the early Christians, turned the Roman Empire upside down. Our teaching series, as you can see on the slide, is called, we're calling it Blueprint, not because we think everything in the book of Acts can be duplicated or uh, done over again. Uh, There's many things like Pentecost and Acts 2 that were unique and unrepeatable, much like the gospel itself. Uh, But we're calling it Blueprint, but because we see in Acts um, the kinds of things that King Jesus was doing through his spirit and through his early followers, this early movement called Christianity, um, because maybe, just perhaps, we might catch a glimpse of what Jesus is calling us to, what he's calling you to, what he's calling me to as 21st century followers of Jesus. Just to give you a little context, in Acts 7, the chapter previous um, to the passage that was read this morning, we looked at it last week, there's recorded in Acts 7 the longest sermon in the Bible. 
and it's given by this man named Stephen, who was an early follower of Jesus. He was a, a leader in this fledgling movement called Christianity. Um, and at the heart of Stephen's message was how the God of the Old Testament, supremely revealed in Jesus, was a God who could not be contained to one place or one people group. He was a God who was, in fact, on the move. And that was a radically subversive claim uh, to first century Jews in particular, a radically for, uh, subversive and, and countercultural claim. So much so that at the very end of Acts, what happens is uh, a group of religious fanatics actually lynch Stephen. Uh, they kill him and he becomes the first martyr. So the reason for that is uh, Stephen's message, his teaching, so radically undermined the central institution of Jewish culture and religion, the temple. And what you see in Acts 8, the passage that we read this morning, uh, and, and in continuing on later in, 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 in Acts 8, is Philip, another leader in the church, actually implementing, beginning to implement, the vision of Stephen's teaching by crossing barriers and ethnic boundaries and evangelizing both Samaritans and later on in Acts 8, a black African official. You see, and what's, what's surprising about that but makes perfect sense if you understand Acts 7 is that Stephen's teaching radically undermined the temple and Philip goes to people, the Samaritans, a people group, who rejected the temple who set up their own temple, and to an African official who was a eunuch, which actually prevented him from drawing near. According to the Old Testament codes and customs, a eunuch would have been prevented from entering in, drawing near to the temple. So really, the big question in Acts 8 is, if God is on the move, if he's going out, how can we, how can you and I, move toward, go out to outsiders? How can a local church, how can the movement of Christianity, how can Trinity OC become a place for outsiders? So this morning what I want to do is look at Acts 8 and look at the the example of these early Christians in Acts 8 under three different headings. So those three headings are this. First, the fruit of their suffering. Second, the character of their witness. And then third, the greatness of their gift. The fruit of their suffering the character of their witness, and the greatness of their gift. So we learn in in verse 1, the death of Stephen actually sparks, it sets off this massive, large persecution of early followers of Jesus that leads to hundreds, perhaps even thousands, of people fleeing Jerusalem as refugees. And we're told that the apostles stay put in Jerusalem. And it's not quite clear exactly how they stay put or why they stay put? Do they take Christianity underground? Are they still publicly teaching in the temple courts as they have been? We're not sure. But from a human point of view, this is a complete catastrophe. It's a disaster both on an organizational, institutional level, but also on a personal level. They have lost, the early church has lost, one of their most dynamic, most gifted, central leaders in the church, Stephen. He's been killed at the hands of the religious elite. Organizationally, this is bad. But also think of this persecution on a personal level. People are being thrown into prison. 
families are probably being separated. People are fleeing from their homes, their neighborhoods, their jobs, just to preserve their life. Think of how devastating this is. What a major setback this is for the church. Now, I don't know about you, but when sickness or setbacks or suffering come into my life, or as I've observed into our family's life, we tend to go inward. Uh, setbacks, don't they have this, this, uh, this quality of, of pulling us into ourselves? They have a tendency to become all-consuming in our life. Disasters, whether it's something major like a loss of a job or something just ordinary like family members getting hit with the flu, normally drive our attention towards ourselves. But not these disciples in Acts 8. See what they're doing? They're looking out. They're looking to other people. Verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. A couple things to notice. First, remember that these aren't the apostles. That's specifically indicated in Acts 8. Uh, Hundreds, thousands of people are fleeing from Jerusalem, but the apostles stay behind. To give it sort of a, a modern twist, this is not the clergy. This is not the pastors. It's you. This is ordinary, working-class people forcibly removed from their homes for their faith commitments. And just when it would be easy, just when it actually would be, in fact, prudent to lay low, they go around telling people about Jesus. Second, most translations actually do us a disservice here. Um, Most of the translations I consulted this week actually doesn't quite bring out Um, the nuances of this particular verse in verse 4. Nearly all of them say uh, that these, these followers of Jesus, these disciples, these ordinary Christians, went about preaching the word. But that's not entirely helpful because doesn't, for, for you and me, preaching the word is something that I'm doing now. It's something that's done from a stage. It's something that's done by a professional. It's something that's done by a preacher. But a better translation might be something like shared the good news, or as one author said, gossiped the gospel. See, these were nameless, amateur missionaries moving out toward their neighbors. Michael Green is an author and professor at the University of Oxford, and he wrote an influential book a number of years ago entitled Evangelism in the Early Church. And in it, what Green does, it's a fascinating little book, is he tries to trace uh, and sketch what the strategy and the success of the early Christian movement was. What, what was the strategy involved in Christianity expanding from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth and turning the Roman Empire upside down? And one of the themes that he brings out in that book is that Christianity spread not through the theologians, not through the preachers, not through the conference speakers and the bloggers, but through ordinary Christians. Green writes, the very fact that we are so imperfectly aware of how evangelism was carried out and by whom should make us sensitive to the possibility that the little man, the unknown ordinary man, the man who left no literary remains, was the prime agent in mission. We cannot hesitate to believe that the great mission of Christianity was in reality accomplished by means of informal missionaries. 
Did you hear that? Ordinary people just like you and me. What was the result? What was the fruit of this scattering? Uh, The fruit of this suffering in these early Christians' lives? We see it in verse 8. It was, it, I have a tendency to read right by words, but we see it in verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. Joy. That's the fruit of their suffering. That's the result. That's the fruit. Can you imagine that for just a moment? Is that what people think of? Is that what outsiders think of when they think of Christianity? Is that what outsiders think of when they think of Trinity OC? Is that what outsiders think of when they think of you, joy? And isn't that entirely what our communities need right now? Communities suffering and broken. Communities facing violence and persecution. Communities facing economic suffering. They need joy. Christians were scattered. They were facing immense economic, social, political pressure. But they moved toward their neighbors with the gospel of Jesus to bring about a revival of joy into their communities. Go back in time with me several years before. John 12. Jesus is with his disciples and he's at the temple. uh, And he's celebrating one of the annual feasts in the temple. And there's a number of Greeks who are coming to also participate in these feasts. They're at Jerusalem. They're trying to worship. And it's cryptic, but Jesus, in, in talking about these Greeks and talking about his disciples, he says this. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That pattern is picked up by Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. When Paul is talking about suffering for the gospel's sake, he says this, death is at work in us, but life in you. Do you hear that? Do you see the pattern? Something needs to die. Something needs to be scattered. Seed needs to be scattered. We need to die so that others can live. We need to be poured out so that others can be filled up. We need to sow in tears so that others can reap with shouts of joy. Why are you here today? Let me ask you that question. Why are you here today? Is it to serve God and other people? Or are you here to get served? Do you know that the call of Jesus is to come and die so that others can live? Take it from my favorite Southern author, Flannery O'Connor. What people don't realize is how much religion costs. They think faith is a big electric blanket when, of course, it is the cross. The fruit of these Christians' suffering was joy, not for themselves, but for other people. So let's look at the character of their witness. These early Christians, they're scattered. Philip is just merely one example that Luke is highlighting And they sat under, can you imagine for a moment, they sat under the leadership and the teaching of the apostles. And if you can picture yourself there for a moment, they were sitting under probably some of the best teaching, probably some of the best preaching that the church has ever witnessed. And probably some of them, maybe even most of them, were perhaps passive in church life. I can imagine them going about their ordinary lives, their ordinary jobs, family life, maybe occasionally bringing friends to hear the great preaching from the apostles, but they largely appeared to be ministry consumers rather than ministry providers. 
But all that changes with the persecution and the scattering. Now people have moved, both geographically and spiritually. They are moving out. They have gone deep into the gospel, and now it was time to go out. So let's look briefly at their witness, the character of their witness. First, I want you to see that their witness, you could say their proselytizing, their evangelism, was marked by both truth and grace. Their evangelism, their witness was marked by both truth and grace. What do I mean? Well, the first century was highly pluralistic. Uh, There were dozens, if not hundreds, of faiths and religious traditions. And more often than not, the Roman Empire, the Roman authorities, allowed these religions to somewhat coexist. And there was a relative degree of freedom uh, to practice as as um, as long as you recognize the emperor. However, the problem came when you asserted the idea or made the claim in public that your path or your truth or your way or your religion or your God was the only way. Does that sound familiar? Something like that is true in the modern world. People are largely fine with including Jesus as a respected religious teacher or perhaps a nice guy, but to claim that he is the one true God... And the only way to true joy and happiness sounds, I think, naive at best or intolerant at worst. Now, that problem was magnified, this problem of religious pluralism and how do you speak the gospel into that kind of context. It was magnified for these early disciples because not only were they being scattered to Judea, the surrounding area around the city of Jerusalem, but they were going to Samaria, They were crossing cultural and social and religious boundaries and engaging with their neighbors who were culturally and religiously other. And yet, what does Luke say? Just just in the moment when it would be so easy to downplay doctrine, to downplay some of the finer points of the gospel so that you could speak into a different culture, what does Luke say? Philip goes down and shows them, verse 5, the Christ. And then later he preaches the name of Jesus Christ in verse 12. See what's happening? Philip is engaging his Samaritan neighbors with the truth. Not something that works for them, not his own personal faith journey, not tips on how to have a better life, but Jesus Christ. That these disciples were engaging people with the truth is also seen in this kind of weird episode with Simon the Magician. Uh, it's, a, it's a curious episode. We'll come back to it in just, a, in just a moment. Simon the Wizard. He's, I guess, sort of like the David Blaine uh, character of Samaria. Samaria. But see what happens to him. Peter confronts Simon with the truth. The rebuke is incredibly harsh. Eugene Peterson in his translation says, this is how he translates what Peter says to uh, Simon the magician. To hell with your money and you with it. How's that for seeker sensitivity? I think, it's, I think what Luke is doing here is pointing to the reality that Christianity is about truth. It's got a hard edge to it. It requires repentance. It's about truth, public claims, historic facts that you must submit your life to. 
these things really matter. They really happened. And it's about ordering your life to them, bringing yourself under the reign of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, the truth of Jesus. That's hard. That's incredibly difficult. Their witness involved truth, but it also involved grace. And you know, isn't that one of the hardest things, this tension, this balance between truth and grace? We can be all about truth, all about sound doctrine and biblical teaching and not gracious. Or we can be all gracious, flexible, accommodating, inclusive, and not truthful. But these disciples, these early followers of Jesus, were embracing both. Look at what Philip is doing. He's in Samaria. He's in Samaria, a city he's not supposed to be in. Jews, we know from the Gospels and from other extra-biblical texts, avoided Samaria. If they were journeying up northward or coming down towards Jerusalem, they would cross over the Jordan River just to avoid Samaria. Philip is in those cities. He's interacting with Samaritans. We know from John's gospel, from John 4, that Jews wanted nothing to do with Samaritans. They would avoid them. They would not associate with them. And look at how close Philip is. He's close to, maybe even touching, Samaritan paralytics and the disabled, which was both culturally and cultically taboo. It would have made you unclean. What does that communicate? It communicates grace. It communicates a posture of grace, a willingness to move towards somebody who's different, who's not like you, who doesn't believe or think or behave the same way that you do. And you see that again in, later on in the passage. There's this curious episode where um, the, the Samaritans believe, and yet Luke indicates that they don't receive the Holy Spirit. That's probably... Uh, largely to show that this was a pivotal point. This was a turning point. Acts 1 verse 8, the gospel would go to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And at each of those stages, the Spirit comes in a supernatural, powerful, unique, unrepeatable way. And so Peter and John come down to these Samaritan villages because as representatives of the, of the 12, of the apostolic community, they are coming to recognize and to celebrate and to show unity that these Samaritans are, in fact, believers. They are Christians. They belong to Jesus. Now, that's interesting, John. It's interesting that John is there. If you go to Luke 9, there's this curious episode where Jesus is on the road and he's traveling to villages in Samaria. And as they're going through these villages in Samaria, some of the same villages... The Samaritans reject Jesus. They want nothing to do with him. And James and John approach Jesus and they say, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to consume these Samaritan villages? This is the same John. And now look at him. Rather than asking that, he, that a curse be called down on these Samaritans, he's laying his hands on these others these, these unclean Samaritans. And what is he doing? He's calling down the Spirit on them. Profound, gracious. Look at, their, look at their witness, characterized by truth and grace. It's amazing. It's shocking. 
So you've seen the fruit of their suffering, joy, bringing joy to other people's lives. You must die. We must die personally and as a body so that others may have joy. Our lives need to be scattered. And you see the character of their witness, a people that, whose engagement with their neighbors was characterized by truth and grace. And people can only be amazed, they can only be astounded when you see that kind of a community, a multi-everything community of people who are courageously and winsomely convicted, and yet at the same time both humbly and graciously compassionate. That's what characterized their witness. But third and finally, I want to look at the greatness of their gift, the greatness of their gift. Now, there's several thorny kind of theological issues in this passage. Uh, This passage is is interesting. It brings up a couple of problems, a couple of tensions. Things like, are the miracles and signs that Philip and some of these believers are doing, are they still for today? Is this something that the church needs to be looking at, searching for? Why are people, I brought this up earlier, but why are people being converted and then receiving the Spirit? If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that the Spirit's involved in conversion and regeneration and bringing new life to people. So why are people being converted and then receiving the Spirit? And then third, who is this Simon the Magician? It's already weird that there's sort of this wizard in Acts 8 but he noticed what happens. He believes and is baptized. That's what Luke says. Um, and, but then later in the passage, Peter gives him this strong rebuke, basically saying that he's an unbeliever. It's a lot. There's a lot, of, a lot of interesting things in this passage. We won't have time to get to them all. But I want to zoom in on Simon, this character of Simon the magician, Simon the magi, because I think it's in this interaction between him and Peter that really gets at the heart of how a community, how, how a person begins to move towards and look to outsiders. So in closing, let's think about Simon the magician and the greatness of the gift. So Simon is a magi. He is someone who practiced magic. And it's hard exactly, precisely. Uh, some of the scholarship is uh, on different sides of this, but it's hard precisely to know what this looked like. Was Simon just more of kind of a scam fortune teller? Or was there some kind of dark, occult-like practice going on? We're not sure. What we do know is that the gospel gets in the way of Simon's fame. Simon has built himself as some kind of divine figure, maybe even like sort of an incarnation of God himself. But Philip's preaching and miracle working has upstaged Simon to the point of apparently Simon becoming intellectually convinced and persuaded of the gospel. But the problem comes in verse 18, where Simon observes Peter and John laying hands on the Samaritan Samaritan believers so that they could receive the Spirit. You see, Simon may well have been intellectually persuaded and convinced of the gospel, but he he failed to receive one of, if not the most important truth claims of the gospel— that salvation is a gift of God's free grace. See, basically, if you look at all other religions, if you look at all other religions, they tell you something that you must do, something that you must achieve. But only in Christianity do you find something that's already been done for you and something that you must receive. 
Christianity is about a gift from first to last. It's the radical, radical claim that there is nothing that you can do to get God to love you more, and there's nothing that you can do to get God to love you less. You see, Christianity, the Bible, isn't about the good life that we think that we've lived or the right stances and postures that we pride ourselves in taking. Christianity says, no, you can never earn it. You could never buy it. That's what Peter's saying. You are too wicked. Your heart is too twisted. You are so corrupt that the Son of God needed to die to make you right with God. The intentions of my heart are so bad that God's Son needed to bleed out on a cross so that I could be forgiven. But Christianity also says, look at how much you're loved. Look at the price that God is willing to pay, an infinite cost, so that you could receive and be a recipient of God's salvation by grace. Do you see that? Do you see that Christianity is about a gift? It's not about, it's not about what you do. You could never earn this. Do you see that? That it's, it's a gift that God has just freely given to you. You know, I read this passage a number of times this week, and on one of my readings, the phrase in verse 23 just struck me. The gall of bitterness, the bond of iniquity. That's what, that's what Simon, that's what Peter says Simon is trapped in, the gall of bitterness. Gall is a substance. It's um, unpleasant to the taste. I don't know. I haven't tried it. I'm just relying on commentators. But... Um, the phrase, the gall of bitterness, could be described as sort of an emotional state, uh, someone who's trapped in kind of bitter anger. Uh, but it more than likely refers to the fact that Simon is in a state of sin, that he is trapped in a state of the gall of bitterness. Uh, this was actually what Peter is doing is referencing back to Deuteronomy. He's going back to Deuteronomy, and the end, end of Deuteronomy, you find that uh, there's... Moses, as he's speaking to the nation of Israel, says that uh, if, you, if, you, if, you follow, if you follow God, if you obey God, if you live your life according to God's law, there's going to be a number of good things that happen to you. But if you don't, if you reject God, if you follow your own way, if you live life under your own authority, and if you're the king of your life, then you're going to be in the gall of bitterness. There's going to be curses on your life. Life is going to be horrible for you. It more than likely, the gall of bitterness refers to the fact that Simon was never converted in the first place. He sat under teaching, he sat under preaching, and he was intellectually persuaded, but never got it, never understood that it's all about God's grace. He hadn't yet got the gospel. And as I was thinking about Simon the magician, someone whose lifestyle practicing sorcery, practicing wizardry, and we're not talking about Dumbledore and Harry Potter were talking about stuff that was uh, pretty, pretty crazy. This, this was a man who, in Old Testament Israel, his, this lifestyle would have been punishable by death. It would have been punished by the ultimate curse. This person would have been brought to the center of the community and stoned to death publicly. And yet Philip is moving towards him. I find that fascinating. 
It reminded me as I was thinking this week, the gall of bitterness, I was thinking of another Samaritan, John 4, someone whose lifestyle uh, would have also warranted capital punishment in Israel, the Samaritan woman at the well. She lived a life of promiscuity. She slept around. She was uh, probably not totally innocent, but probably also the victim of, of being taken advantage of by other men. And Jesus moves towards this woman, this Samaritan woman. And you know what he says to her? He says this. He says, whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And you know how Jesus was able to offer that woman a drink from the cup of eternal joy, of eternal life, water that would leave her satisfied, water that would leave her life transformed. It's because on the cross, Jesus experienced the bitter curse of God's law, of God's wrath against sin. He was thirsty, and actually his executioners offered him wine mixed with gall, and yet he did not drink. He did not drink because all of the wages of sin were piled on Jesus. All the bitter cup of God's justice against evil was being drained, was being poured out on the cross. Why? So that salvation could be free for you. So that it could be a gift. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's what we sang earlier in the service. Do you realize you can bring nothing? You can bring nothing to Jesus. You can bring nothing to God. Not your good works, not your sin. Nothing can separate you from God's love because it's a free gift. It reminded me of the old hymn. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Sinners whose love can never forget the wormwood and the gall. Go spread your trophies at his feet and crown him Lord of all. Do you want joy in the midst of your suffering? Do you, does your life, do you want your life to be characterized by truth and grace? By commitments and conviction and yet at the same time compassion and love for other people? And receive this gift. Receive this Jesus. Throw your trophies at his feet and then crown him Lord of all. Let's pray. Father, we're amazed by this example of the boldness and conviction and risk-taking of these early sisters and brothers. But we know, Father, that their example would be crushing if not for the reality that your grace is a gift. It's free we can never earn it. We can never buy it. We thank you for this indescribable gift of your grace to us in Jesus. So Spirit, come. Help us catch the vision that the way to joy is through the cross. Pour out our lives so that others may see Jesus. And may your kingdom come through Jesus, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God forever and ever. Amen.